0: The midterm elections revealed something far deeper about our culture than most people imagine. The results are getting a lot of attention, and understandably so, but that's not the whole story. There's much to learn from the campaigns, the debates, the speeches, and the lead up, too. The country is facing significant challenges, from inflation to the Russia-Ukraine war and many others. But there was something conspicuously missing from the statements of candidates of all parties missing was any semblance of political vision or ideology. Is this vacuum any worse than past elections? What does it signify and why do voters accept it? Today, we'll take a look at some of the philosophical lessons to be drawn from the midterm elections. I'm Ilan Jurnow and joining me today is my colleague, Ankar Gatte. Welcome, Ankar. Hi, Elon. So I thought we should stop by talking a bit about what scope of our conversation is going to be because there's a lot of people doing postmortems right now about midterms (laughs) it's it's wall-to-wall coverage i think just to underscore what's distinctive about our approach here and i would classify it as it's a philosophical analysis that want to draw out some of the deeper issues how do you think of this and what motivated you to to want to dive into this
1: yeah i think of it as it's a philosophical perspective, a longer-term perspective of what's happening in American politics. So it's stepping aside. I mean, people are looking at it at it from the perspective, and I mean, this is valid, but it's not all there is to the situation of looking at it of uh, what happens normally happens in a president's first term when it's you've got these midterm elections and when his popularity is such and such. Yeah, what normally happens. And so it's viewed as it was good result for Democrats, because it usually the opposing party would sweep more seats than they seem to have gotten some are still up in the air. And looking at it ahead for the 2024 election, which is important as well, but it's important as I think it equally to take a longer term view of what's happening in American politics and some of the, the deeper forces, both, well, here I think it's essentially there's negative, deeper forces that are important to pay attention to that, uh, unfortunately, I, I think they're, they're negative and they're ominous. And that you could see it in the campaigns this year on both sides, if you're taking this lo- wider, longer term perspective.
0: So I wanted to put a few issues on the table that I was really interested in, in thinking about what, what's going to happen as a result of the midterms and where different candidates stand on this. I'll just name, put them all out, and then we can dig into some of them. So one was abortion, I think, which is the biggest issue in many respects because of the decision earlier this year from the Supreme Court knocking down Roe uh, as a precedent. I think inflation, and we were talking earlier about inflation in the pandemic, that the just what how would you approach these issues? what what's their salience for people? Energy energy prices and I, and this I think of as slightly different from most people. I think of it as the the ways in which we're restricting energy production in the United States, which is hobbling our ability to, to extract and, and take advantage of energy. and that's part of it is seen in high price. And then there's some foreign policy issues that were not really discussed. I mean surprising, how little there was of this. So the big one is Russia, Ukraine, another one is Iran, and then another one is China. And they, they make some appearances, but not at all in the way that I would have expected. And then the, the final issue, you mentioned this, and I think it's it's worth, maybe we can start with this. The, I'm not sure how to describe it, but I would say that there's this whole climate of questioning the integrity of elections ever since 2020, where you know, the the whole steal the vote and then what happened in January 6th and and how this has been fostered by Donald Trump and many others uh, since then. And this came up as an issue, you you mentioned this in the the context of Georgia, where uh, there was an outcome that I think was significant. So I'm curious your thoughts on how these issues figured and didn't figure into uh, uh, the results. And where, where do you see any bright spots as well?
1: yeah, so the and in the shorter term, but it has implications for twenty, twenty four and and beyond that, I was the most encouraging thing for me was the Georgia that Brian Kemp defeated Stacey Abrams and same at the level of the Secretary of State. So these were people, and if you I think we talked about this when we did our podcast on January sixth uh, insurrection, or the however you want to term it, Uh, that if you listen to the call between Trump and Kemp and I forget there were others on the on the call um, and the pressure that was being put on Georgia that you should just not certify the vote or do something that they had and the essence of the situation from their perspective was we have no evidence for any of this and yet you want us to do it and when you listen to that call I think one of the things that was striking about it and good about it is that they just sounded like Americans in the sense that like you're asking us to do something. You don't provide a shred of evidence for it. And like, it would be really wrong to do it. And it, and the politics of the situation didn't matter as much. And um, people and people on the democratic side and so on, but just sort of Americans falling in the political scene, I think rightly saw that as like, that's a good thing. That's part of what it means for someone to put, let's put it in terms of the, the kind of oaths they take of putting the constitution first and so on. And then you certainly can as a government official do something for which you have absolutely no evidence for. And that it, the, the fact that they're Republicans and so on, shouldn't matter. What they did was right in that situation. It was important that they did the right thing. And I think any voter who cares about the election system, but also cares about rewarding politicians who do something good, they uh, deserve the vote. And particularly if you think in contrast, say, to Stacey Abrams, I think that the, their positions of camp and so on are better as well. But that they didn't, even if someone is, thinks like I can't vote Republican or independents looking at it, I think part of what the vote, what it reflects is some genuine assessment of, and not just, uh, um, well, it's Republican, I'll never vote Republicans, I'm voting for the other candidate or vice versa. The, the results were somewhat unexpected. And I think I've, the analysis I've seen that makes sense to me is that the independents, um, acted independently in that sense and supported some of the better candidates of the republican voted against some of the worst candidates of the republican and it so in that sense they weren't it wasn't so tribal, and I think it was important that in Georgia, these two people they won re election, because I think they deserve to win re election.
0: yeah I was surprised just turned to a different topic how. Little there was on the pandemic. So in one respect, there was people, I think the mm-hmm. um, the Governor of Florida campaigned on the fact that he kept schools open and wasn't this great. And, and in some ways, I can understand that 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 was it, it turned out to be a better policy than what was being done in many other places. But overall, you know, during the pandemic's peak, we were talking a lot with our colleague Ankara. Uh, uh, Ankar, you and I were talking with Amesh Shadalja, who's a, an, one of his specialties is that he, he looks at pandemic preparedness and one of his critiques during the pandemic and since then has been that America was underprepared and it was uh, unforgivable given all the knowledge that there is about being prepared for a pandemic. And I've been thinking that it, there's parallels between that kind of preparedness and, and military preparedness, which is a pandemic is something that occurs rarely. And well, thankfully, it's very rare. And military confrontations should be rare, too. And and given where we are as a, as a country, they, they are rare. But there, there's a way in which it's much easier for people to recognize we need to have a military that's strong and ready for anything. Who knows what might come? The pandemic should have taught people that we need similar levels of preparedness. It it looks different. It's not bullets and and armaments and so on, but we needed a a level of preparation for this sort of crisis. And no one's really pushing that. It seemed to me like a winning proposition. If you promise people we'll be in a position where we never ever have to be locked down the way we were during the pandemic. Isn't that a, a winning proposition to me? I would be very, very appealing to me. Uh, and all the economic upheavals that went along with the lockdowns. and So that seems like a big omission. And I mention it because with our focus today, we're trying to look at a wider perspective, longer range perspective. So part of the worry after the pandemic is, okay, well, that's over. What's next? And and no concept of this is a long-term perspective that you have to take towards pandemics. It's not like, well, we'll worry about it next century when it happens again. You need to be in a position to have a view beyond the next election cycle, beyond the next five years, so that if something catastrophic happens and something worse than COVID-19 surfaces, you're ready for it. And and I'm disappointed that no one's really pushing that position. Uh, And I think it's, it's a symptom, or I think it can be read as a symptom of a lack of long range vision politically.
1: That's the basic lesson or uh, idea that I take from the, the midterms. And this is in terms of thinking of the longer term political direction of the United States. What I found striking is, so you put it long term political vision, I put it I'm long past thinking that any politician will talk at the level of principles, of political principles in the way, so what does it look like to do that? In the way that say Madison, uh, James Madison or Thomas Jefferson talked about politics, about the constitution. If you think of the Federalist papers, I don't think, and it, it is unfortunately, I think unreasonable to expect today's politicians to have anything close to that level of intellect understanding and kind of political uh program so that that's at the level of deep political principles such as like why you need a separation of church and state both madison and jefferson have much and much eloquent to say about that no politician today if they say anything will be just total blow which is not true of madison or jefferson but if One level below that is having some policies that have some coherence and set some long term agenda so that you have some idea of what they will, um, what they plan to do if they stick to what they say, of with political power, but that what not what they'll do the next day, but what their sort of agenda is. So, this is what they will be trying to do in their four years in office. And here the the midterms, I mean you brought up DeSantis about the pandemic. I mean that's at a level of a state, but we, obviously there was a lot of people running for Congress. And you're part of the federal government. So you should have some kind of view of how is how should the federal government for instance approach a pandemic and what should its policies be? Not like what do you do the next day about if someone is at CDC says such and such while well, we do this and we sideline them? Or, but how do you approach a pandemic? And that, that I think of as like, it's a policy. It's not at the level of political principles but it's not just also just seat of your pants. And I found striking, but I think this is the trend. That's part of, but part of the issue that on issue after issue, you can't look at a candidate and say what their policy is. What is their policy in regard to a pandemic? What is their policy in regard to inflation? What is their, if you ask like more broadly about Ukraine, what is their policy in regard to it? Not should we continue for the next month to send them money or arms, but how? what is your policy? What is your long-term vision what are you hoping like what you hope is the outcome what do you think this aid is going to do or there were discussions of um some republicans that they want to stop the aid. So who knows and who knows because who knows what their policy in, is in regard to this and that if you go for almost every issue it's you can't even now at the level of a policy say this is what a person at least says they stand for they don't even bother saying anything in regard to even if they don't stick to it then two years from now. And that is, I found that it's new. So this isn't an issue of partisanship uh, uh, or a divide. I think a divide at the level of policy is fine. Here we have real partisanship and people think like we're really opposed to one another. And there's no way you can discern that from their policies. You can get it like I'm a member of the Republican club and I'm Democrat so we're really opposed but at the level of policy you can't get it and that is like that's part of what tribalism looks like it's so as they would put it like polarized which is not a valid term but th- the way they would put it but not about any policy
0: yeah, yeah. I, I think a good example of this may be the the way abortion has come up in the the campaigns and the and the positioning of different candidates because abortion is a very concrete kind of decision Are, is it going to be legal in this state is it not going to be legal uh, what should the federal position be on this and in that sense it's it, it's easier for them to take a stand on that because then they they can just signal i'm i'm with this camp or with this camp it's 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 one or the other and then there's within that it's how strict are you going to be about exceptions and so forth? But it's 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 surprising how little there is discussion about well why would you make it legal and why would you ban it and what's the basis for that and, the, and just the, the implications of it. So it in a certain way I'm I'm glad it was on the agenda for a lot of voters and what I'm seeing in some of the coverage that I think is plausible is that it became an issue for voters who are undecided or that the. the this became salient for them. It's like I'm going to vote in this with this as my main issue, which is good because I think it's an important freedom that's been lost uh, as a result of the overturning of Roe. but it's it's disappointing that it's just so concretely held. It's not the question of it, should the woman have a right to this? It's well, we're going to decide the particular concretes of how abortion is going to be managed in this state. and it's just it doesn't inspire me with the hope that it's going to become protected better or better understood, um, but it does seem like that in, in a number of places, voters are not happy that this is being uh, taken away. So that's sort of a very small bright spot uh, in, yeah. in this landscape. I would
1: say, I would say that's the issue where there's the most long-term perspective, and yeah. it's it sticks out both for that and. How um precarious that is, in part, as you say, because the and it's basically both sides don't want to articulate their reasons for their position. they will have a position, but it has the most long-term focus because it's at least at the level of laws, laws either being proposed or laws we would overturn, and that has long-term implications if this is the law that we're banning abortion and there won't even be exceptions for rape and incest that like to change the law is a process and um so that like has some endurance but even there like that was the most abstract discussion I think the and you could at least say that you're getting maybe close to a policy in regard to it but if you contrast that with say inflation and the pandemic and I think they go together because if you don't have a view that inflation is connected to the pandemic, um, you're not thinking about it at all. If you you think like you can um, have millions and millions and millions of people not working, told to stay at home and so on, not producing anything, so dramatically restricting supply, and well, that won't have any impact on prices. I mean, you live in a fantasy, and that makes you unfit for even thinking about running for office. So you can't, if you're seriously saying, well, we're going to tackle inflation and so on, the idea that you can have no position on the pandemic and on lockdowns and things, and was this all wrong and we need different policies and we have to ensure that there's different policies in perspective, uh, in place. And the discussion of it, of inflation was, yeah, we're, we're going to fight inflation, but where did inflation come from? Well, How are you going to fight it? it's a, there was, it was so empty that you can't, if you ask about what their fiscal policy was, you can't, there's no answer to that. Um, and uh, the, and there was no pretense of even an answer. And that's part of what I find new that there, you don't even have to have a pretense of an answer to that.
0: So you're suggesting different ways in which this is a new development. I wanna talk about how, if at all, this is new and is it a de- de- degeneration from where we were uh, in the past? So we can look at different elections in the past, different candidates. And I, I what would you say in comparison? Let's go back to, um, I wonder if we should go backwards in time or just start in in 1980 and work forwards but i I think maybe it was worth going further back and moving forward because i think that's the pattern so ayn rand had a lot to say about reagan she did not like him she liked him initially and then as she learned more about him she grew very negative and and critical and you can hear her views on him in a talk called the age of mediocrity which you can find we'll, we'll put links to that in the show notes but the the her view of Reagan was what she objects to is the philosophy he doesn't have. I think that's a, I'm paraphrasing. I don't have exact wording, but it was a very profound statement. Like it's not that he has the wrong views; like he doesn't have a view, and he's letting in other people, sort of fill the vacuum. He, he's 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 empty, and the various influences are coming in. And one of the major influences, and she she faulted him for allowing this to happen was the so-called religious right or the moral majority that's one of the factions within it uh, and and that came to define reagan's positions in a significant way maybe not exclusively but it definitely some of his signature position and i ever since i remember we're encountering you, it was surprising to me compa- comparing her analysis of reagan with it's sort of a, a a favorable yet critical view that you would get from someone who is a conservative which is reagan is a towering giant in in the mythology of the american right he's i mean people deride him as the patron saint of the conservatives he's this really principled guy inspired a lot of people and he's someone against whom future candidates are always judged. Is he Reagan-like? Can he, can he muster the same kind of enthusiasm among voters? And so there's a big gap between how she saw him and how many people see Reagan. So that, I think, is, is telling. So she already said of Reagan, take, and she had other things to say about her predecessors in office, but she's regarded him as vacuous. Uh, and I maybe it's useful to talk a bit about why that is and what so what's the implied standard here that she had?
1: Yeah, I think it's, I mean, what you said is what, and I think it's, It you say you're paraphrasing, but I think it's pretty close to a direct quote that what she objects to Reagan is the philosophy he doesn't have. And that's an expectation of that an American politician, an American president running for the the, the head of the federal government and so on, should be operating at a level closer to Madison or Jefferson, so she would never say, I think, of Jefferson, that he doesn't have a philosophy, and here it means particularly a political philosophy, a set of principles through which you're going to construct your policies that are setting the long-term direction, and that that's how people saw Reagan as he's this new the revival of the founding fathers and so on. And I think her perspective is, you don't have a clue if you think he's like Jefferson or he's like Madison. So that's her standard. And that's part of what I said earlier that I've dropped that as a standard. I mean, it's, it's, it's sad in that sense that you have to drop that. But if you have that expectation, um, no, no politician's gonna come close to it. But if you think just at the level of policy, I take Reagan, over today's politicians. And that is, I think it was still right to think of him as having some policies, both bad and good. But so even something like the, his attitude towards the moral majority and that like part of what we need is more religion in politics. That's completely false. It was a destruction of freedom, but it tells you a little bit of his long range orientation of, and and that he, Lived up to it in some regard. Um, I, I think the moral majority certainly hope, thought he's going to pay them more attention than he did, but he certainly did some um, and helped them gain more respectability, more political power. But if you think that, I mean, he came in to fight the inflation at the end of the 70s. And again, you had more of an idea, he has some policy. He sees inflation as a monetary phenomenon. He's gonna bring in someone like a Paul Volcker, who what he's gonna do is clamp down on the creation of money at the, at the level of the federal government and federal reserve. And that's not, that's not political philosophy and political principles, but it is a policy that sets some long range direction. And the same in foreign policy, you had an idea that he views the Soviet Union as evil, and that, that like his policy is gonna be stop appeasing them and speak more forthrightly about that they're evil. And that's how we have to deal with it. And that's, there's something that this is what I mean by a policy, it's not a political principle but it sets some long range direction. And you can have some idea of what he's going to do if voted into power. And so many of today's politicians I think you can't really answer that question. They're going to do with the, in the way their tribe swings and so on, but they don't have any policy that is ideological or intellectual is a different way of putting it. And that, I think the contrast of Reagan, both backwards towards Jefferson or Madison is tells you something very deep. And then fast forward to someone like, Uh, take of who Republicans wanted to win, Mehmet Oz, or take um, Herschel Walker in Georgia. I mean, it's going to a runoff. Uh, The idea that they have any policies, they don't have any policies. Uh, And I think both of them equally could have run for the Democrats. Um, And that's because there's nothing intellectual there. And that's, I think that's, that's, it's new, it's a continuation of a trend. So in that sense, it's not new, but it's we're quite a bit lower than um, we were even, even 20 years ago, we could talk about sort of the turn of the century. Um, but, so that's part of my perspective on it. And I think, to think of, it, of part of what Ayn Rand was looking at, she's looking at it at the level of principle. And, but even at the level of policy, something has changed dramatically, I think.
0: Yeah, I think another good example is, again, someone I we were very critical of when he was in office, and i still very critical of George uh, W. Bush. Uh, he was in power when 9-11 happened, and he presided over the, the response to that in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we were scathing about George W. Bush, and I think all of that holds up. What is interesting from the perspective of having a long-term vision or longer term vision than some of the current people in politics, is you made the point when we were talking about this previously, that one of the things we criticized Bush about was this foreign policy of what was at the time called the forward strategy of freedom, which was the idea of bringing elections to the Middle East as a solution to to Islamic terrorism. Or stalling future attacks like 9/11. That was the, and and there was a certain kind of, uh, I mean, that was a policy. I mean, you could say, well, this is going to have long-term effects. It was going to start in Baghdad and Kabul, and it was going to be a wave of democratic revolutions across the Middle East, and it was put in those terms. That's that was the metaphor, the wave, democratic wave. And, it, and they tried to implement it. So they, they took it seriously. They went and pushed for elections in Egypt and they pushed for elections in the Palestinian territories and in Lebanon and other places. I mean, it all went awry as, as predictable as that was. And we were um, making that case, but it, there's a way in which as wrong as that was, there was a, a kind of longer range perspective that you could understand. You could, you could point to it as this is a direction. We're gonna try this. And it was distinguished from, and this is a point I wanted to come back to, picking up on your comment about Oz and uh, uh, Walker. It was markedly different from the kind of policy that uh, Bill Clinton had. Now, Bill Clinton was a big advocate of democracy promotion, but it did not look anything like what George W. Bush did. Uh, there, there was the rhetoric about uh, pushing democracy under Clinton and in Uh, but it was very different. You could tell this is, there's no, the the other party was not advocating anything close to this. Uh, So I I don't think there's anyone today who has anything similar to what Bush was advocating in foreign policy. Uh, Now, just to pick up on something you said that just reminded me of an interesting observation on this issue. So you you made the the point just now that Oz and Walker could have easily run for the other party if the, the seat was open and it seemed advantageous. Uh, I noticed something similar with the, the positions or stands that some of the other candidates took that it was hard to tell. If you, if you were given the, 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 just the blurb about what they stand for on a given issue and you didn't know who the candidate was, could you actually guess who was, who they represented and what they were gonna stand for? And I think it's a good test to do that with, with that, uh, different candidates. And the one that struck me, I was reading the page for uh, Fetterman. And <laughs> so he has a, a statement about uh, making, so it, it, the, the headline for the statement is make more stuff in America. And there's uh, a long, for a politician's page, a long write-up about that. It's three paragraphs. And the gist of it is we need to buy American. We need to force companies to build in America. We need to bring jobs back and not outsource anymore. And I finished reading that. And I thought this reads exactly like the statements that Elizabeth Warren had when she was running for uh, she's trying to become a presidential candidate. But it also is, is indistinguishable from the position of, of Donald Trump, who is a Republican uh, uh, president. And to me, the the that you get this sort of convergence on, on particular issues. There's a lot to say about how that ends up being the case on, and which issues the convergence is stronger. But to me, it's it's evidence that there isn't really thinking about policy. This is concrete level things that, well, in my, in my district, if I say Buy American, that's gonna excite people. So I'm gonna say Buy American. Do I really know the logic of this? Is it gonna work economically? Is there any basis for, no, I'm just, this is the working class district where I, I think I can win votes this way. Bringing jobs back, manufacturing, what's the evidence for thinking this is really what anyone should do let alone a, a government forcing you to do it. And it, it it's concrete positions divorced from any kind of conceptual intellectual framework for, no, I, I have a view of how an economy is gonna be run and. And instead, it's this: we're going to patch this one thing that bothers you by forcing people to take this concrete action. And it's it, and it's it's revealing that there isn't really a framework in either side who, who who advocate this. Does that resonate with you? Have you seen that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, uh, and it it what particularly is I think noticeable, or at least if it's pointed out, it's yeah, there's something there is. It's not trying anymore. That's part of what I find in terms of the trend. This is where we are now. So one of the things that I found most startling about that you showed me this prior to when we went on the air is it starts off with fighting inflation and lowering costs starts with making more stuff in America. Now, the whole complaint about that stuff's not made in America is they we allow them to Uh, Outsource to cheap labor in Asia and elsewhere. And what cheap labor means is the costs are way lower, so we can sell it at a lower price. And that's what's pricing Americans out of the market. So how can you possibly think if we're going to require that more stuff be made in America? Yeah, part of what that means is prices will go up for things that if it's not made with cheap labor, and this is how you're going to fight inflation and lower costs. And it's, it's so, like, you're not even trying to have anything even resembling a policy. It's just, oh, yeah, we're supposed to be fighting inflation, so I'll put in something here about fighting inflation. So And there's, if you contest that, say, to think of some of the people who have been pushed out of politics, like a Paul Ryan um, from, the, from the Republican Party, he, I don't think it's at the level, certainly, of operating at principles, but he has a little bit of a understanding of an economic policy and he was big about uh reforming the entitlement state and there's things we have to do and has long-term projections and how it works and whether you think he's right or wrong about that that's what it looks like he has some policy in regard to like social security is out of control it's going to go bankrupt here this is not even a policy about inflation it's just yeah fighting inflation i'm that's what we're supposed to do is i'll throw that in and um made in america people want that i'll do that What's the relationship between the two, who cares? Um, and, and that's the that, that we're not operating at the level of a policy anymore. And to go back to think of that, I, I think the foreign policy issue is very instructive because of, of the, sort of the dissent that we've had. So looking at this over the span of decades rather than of, of days in terms of how people think about the current election cycles and so on. If you're looking at the span of a decade or two, George W. Bush did not run on his foreign policy. He was a compassionate conservative, was mostly about domestic issues, because 9-11 hadn't happened. And when it was clear at the time, but he's also said this in in retrospect, is he was completely unprepared in terms of foreign policy. He didn't really have a foreign policy, hadn't thought very much about it. And then the crisis of 9-11 happened. And it's so part of what's revealing is that he felt the need to have a policy in regard to this. And it's so he was part of the people formulating it, but it was partly the neocons, partly people like Cheney and so on. But it was like, we have to have some kind of policy, some kind of long range, long-term direction in regard to that. This is a massive crisis and so on. And what are we going to do? And if you contest that to the present, with, like, like think of two real crises, um, the pandemic, certainly, and that's a crisis at home and so of uh, affecting every American. And if you think of Ukraine as it's certainly a crisis in Europe and, and, and like what is the winter going to be and so on. And the response is not now that we have to formulate some kind of policy. Of how we're going to deal with this and how we're going to address this. And if you ask, like, what's the policy in regard to Ukraine and Russia, you, there is no answer to that. Or if you ask, what is the policy now for pandemics, there's not, it's not even like, like they formulated a flawed policy. That was our view of the foreign, po- uh, the forward strategy of freedom as a strategy. And notice the word strategy and as a policy, it was this is completely misguided and it's going to result in disaster, not any positives. But you could look at it in terms of, OK, this is a policy set trying to set a certain direction for the next few years and so on. And we criticized it on that basis. You can't criticize the, the action or outlook in regard to Ukraine or the pandemic in regard to a policy or a strategy because they have none. And they don't, they don't feel the need to have one. And that's part of what I find so revealing. Uh,
0: I- I want to just step back a bit and talk about how this is a trend. So you mentioned it, it's, it's a disintegration or a degradation over time, and I I agree with that. I but I think it's worth to unpack, uh, unpacking what's behind it and why is it people who vote are tolerating it. And I think there, there's two, at least those two issues to unpack. But in thinking about it, it it's let's try to characterize a bit what this trend is. And I I think a couple of things that have come up already, it's not long range. There's no conception of the long range. There's very concrete range of the moment perspective. Election cycle driven, I think is the way people are comfortable thinking of it, but it's maybe even less. Uh, I think an election cycle has some semblance of planning and I I tend to think it's it's more news cycle driven, so a 24 hour cycle. Uh, So that's one feature of it. I think the other feature is very concrete bounds. We talked about the way abortion is discussed and the way, which is very tribal. And then the other example that came up, which I think falls under this heading of being very concrete bound is, as you put it, that there's not an attempt to explain how forcing jobs back into the US is going to drive inflation down because the logic of the economics is going going to drive against that. Uh, So I think that the one of the things that strikes me about this is th- there's one other feature that I think is worth talking about, this trend, and maybe you have others you want to raise. But in thinking about the the way a lot of the candidates presented themselves. So we've we've argued a bit about how there, there's an absence of policies, an absence of intellectual framing of a long-term perspective. But the what's really striking is the way in which they signal what they stand for. And and I I spent some time reading different politicians' pages. So I I mentioned uh, uh, Fetterman, I went to Herschel Walker's website, I went to Carrie Lake, I went to various others, and it's interesting to see how they position themselves. And in the absence of policy or in absence of any sort of conceptual longer range perspective, what there are is, Sound bites. I think, the best way to characterize them. Things that you can read in, in one go, it's, it's a couple of sentences, doesn't really tell you what will they will do once they get into power, except some general statements that sound like what the, the party position might be. But the, the, the aspect that really left out at me is the, I'm, with, so for the particularly Republican uh, candidates, it's, I'm endorsed by Trump. And I'm going I'm to be an Arizona first uh, politician because I'm, I'm in line with America first. But, and it's sort of replicating may, if there's a playbook for Trump or just some of the features of Trump's approach to politics as that's, my, that, that's a big source of the value that I represent. And I think that that's definitely true with Lake. And I think it's somewhat true with Walker. It's not really clear what he stands for. And to me, that is, is highly tribal. It's, I'm part of the Trump class, the, the Trump group or the club, or have you, that you think of it. And in the run-up to the election, which we haven't talked about, and this would be, we touched on this in the in the Georgia context, but there's a lot of concern about candidates who were running on the claim, reiterating the claims about election fraud, election uh, was stolen in 2020, and, and will it be stolen now? So to me, the, this the feature that really is highly characteristic of what we're seeing is associating yourself with what you think your your tribe members like, which is for the Republicans, it's I'm with Trump. And if you want to attack your opponent, it's not my opponent doesn't have a coherent policy. It's my opponent is a mini Biden. And we all hate Biden. So don't vote for my opponent. And this came up in, in the Oz uh, um, campaign too. He's a, a big part of his attack against his opponent was He's aligned with Biden. You don't like Biden, don't. Li- and that is, it's not an argument. And it's, it's, it's sad that that's how, it, it's insulting to the people voting and it's revealing of a lack of any, of any attempt to present some actual position.
1: Yeah, and it, it's the part of the tribalism and that it's more explicitly tribal, is I think for some time, both the Republican and Democrats, and more broadly, kind of conservative, liberal, progressive, have been more tribal, but there was still some felt need to couch it in more intellectual, ideological terms, that what unites us is some set of shared ideas and now it's much more what unites us is we like the same people or we live in the same area and even a little bit of we have the same color skin and it's so the absence that what we stand for is some ideas that's what and and it it's the absence of that and the felt need to not even uh, that sort no longer a felt need to cover up that absence. Like there, there's something defective about that. And we have to pretend that we have more of a policies and an ideological position than we actually do have. And the um, so, so it, it, it's part of it. It's a focus on personalities then and the personality of your opponents when you put it there's no argument it's yeah there's no now there's not a debate really about any ideas and i watched a lot of um npr in the run i normally do listen to the news npr a lot uh in part because they allow Politicians and strategists for the Republicans and Democrats to talk a little bit more. It's not all sound bites. The, the, the interviews are a little longer and they give people a little more space to talk. A, it was incredible how empty of any ideological position. We're not Trump and we believe in elections or we don't, we think they were still. That's not anything in terms of setting a political direction. Now, I would vote against any of these election deniers and the people who think you don't need any evidence to assert things and you can make the most baseless accusations and sh- should somehow still be taken seriously. But the that's just like, that's such a low bar that, okay, we're not gonna vote that in. I wanna vote, and this was a point Ayn Rand made. You're voting for representatives. You don't and can't know what is gonna happen in government you can't know there's a 9-11 that's gonna happen. You can't know a pandemic. There's all kinds of things you can't predict and think in terms of representatives at that concrete a level. The only way you can think of it as they're representing my interest is at the level of ideas and ultimately at the level of principles. And this is why I think she thought once principles disappear, there's a way in which representative government is disappearing because you don't actually know what you're voting for. You don't have an idea that if they live up to what they're saying, this is what they would do. Um, but as I say, the, at the that's ultimately you need principles, but you need at least policies to have an idea. Okay, this is how, if it take the forward strategy of freedom, if another 9-11 emerges, or there's terrorist attacks in Europe as happened after 9-11 and so on. It's okay, this is how this person's gonna think about it. And he's probably gonna double down on his forward strategy of freedom. And so. On. And that tells you, okay, that if I'm electing him, this is what he's going to do. And that's to have a representative form of government. That's what you have to be able to do. The, both the elected is should be trying to articulate things at a level of policies and principles so that you know where he stands and you know for concretes that come up, which are not, you can't anticipate or know, okay, but this is how he would approach it. And that's what you can't do anymore. So like what, what if we, what the people voted in now and there's another pandemic, what will they do? I have no idea, no idea what they will do. And the idea then that they're representing me, like how do you pick a representative when you have no idea what they will do?
0: I wanted to talk a bit about, I'm interested in your thoughts on why people accept this, and maybe there's a, we should question the premise of that question, because I, the more I think of it, the more I, I wonder if it's the right question. And, but, but just to step into the, the, the trend one more time, how do you think of the trend? So we, we are, we traced it from before Reagan and since Reagan, and, and the, there's definitely a trend that predates Donald Trump. So I think the the, the natural thing for people to think is, oh, Donald Trump is the, the the exclusive source of this, and I don't think that's true. I think he maybe he amplified it, maybe he normalized certain kinds of behavior that weren't common in the past. I think that is is definitely true, but I certainly don't think he's the source of it, and because we've seen it predating him. How do you think of the? fundamental driver behind this sort of anti-intellectual trend, or how do you characterize it?
1: Um, well, I mean, that is one characterization of it, that there's a, a growing anti-intellectual trend in America, and for understandable reasons that on the, I mean, this is something Ayn Rand talked about a lot, that the the left, the pro-socialism, pro-collectivism side has lost its uh, moral fervor and moral certainty that the bankruptcy of socialism, of collectivism was clear by the 70s, let's say. I mean, I think it was earlier than that, but by the, the 70s, it's clear. It's part of that there was this kind of mood in the country of the need to have a swing to the right and that's part of how it, it was put it's that like this has failed this is it was a crusading ideal or or had had that that at least pr that it was presenting itself as a crusading ideal and if you think of the 60s and the counterculture and this it's like this is we're the voice of the future and the new ideal and so on and that was shown to be a disaster politically. Um, but it it dates further back into World War II and, and the, the rise of collectivism and its, and its failure. But you didn't, so this is part of why she was so anti-Reagan, I think, that what a swing to the right, what it would look like and what it needed to be to have long-term positive impact is okay, so we've had this kind of um, moral and intellectual crusade on the side of collectivism. Now we need it on the side of individualism and freedom. And that's part of how the sort of the PR around Reagan was trying to say that's what he is. And her view, I think, was that he is not that. He's not anything like that. And to associate what it looks like to have a moral crusade for on the side of the right is Reagan and the so-called moral majority. I think Ayn Rand's comment was they're neither, they're not moral and they're not a majority in the country. Um, and it, it was in part of PR com- campaign in the same way it was for the the new left to 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 exaggerate what their attraction was to the rest of the country. But that's, so you have, then Reagan presented as this is what it looks like to be sort of moral crusader on the right. Who wants that? Who wants the moral majority? And that's part of what pushes in an anti-intellectual direction. now on both sides, both sides have an awareness that, and the awareness unfortunately is true that we're not actually intellectual. I mean, the idea that the new left was intellectual, the counterculture with its drugs and the hippies, um, has nothing it has no connection to the intellect. And the moral majority has no connection to the intellect. So this is part of that it. it's a long-term trend of emptying the American politics of any real intellectuality. I think it is a longer term trend, but where we are now, is new, and I don't know what your perspective is. I'm, so I know you have a non-US perspective because you're an immigrant, so am I coming from Canada. And I can remember thinking in the 90s that um, as bad as American politics is, it's better than in Canada because they talk more about ideas and ideologies than any political party in Canada does. And to just give an example from Canada, we had a party called the Progressive Conservatives. Um, and uh, like what they stood for and what well, how the hell you think you can put these two things together and so on, nobody really cares that that's part of the, and it, it, in the US it seemed like there, there's still a level of discussion of politics at the level of ideas. And I no longer feel that. I no longer feel there's any kind of contrast like that in regard to Canada and the U.S., and that's the emptying of it of ideas. It's not that Canada's gotten better. It's
0: yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm reflecting on what my impression was, and I, I think it was similar in that the U.K. scene, when I was tracking it and living there, there was a, a strong convergence to this what they regarded as the center, and there are certain issues that nobody challenged so the, the the prime one is the national health service it, that's just untouchable no no party is willing to re- go against that and every party is going to campaign to align with that and it was very small differences between the two major parties uh and it was hard to distinguish who was where uh, it definitely struck me that there was uh a i don't know that i would have characterized as anti-intellectual because I, I think when i was tracking politics at the time in the UK, I I didn't have a very sophisticated view, but I definitely got the sense that it was um, undistinguished and there were different, you could tell people apart mainly by just personalities. And I think that's sort of the sort of tribal perspective that is seen here. Yeah, I mean, today's conversations definitely underscored the way in which the political scene in the US is it's really declined in the time that I've lived here. Uh, So I remember you you mentioned uh, George W. Bush. I remember being incensed at his platform of compassionate conservatism. I remember trying to write articles about this and his whole approach to it and and thinking, well, it's a new riff on conservatism and what's really new here and this is really not at all compatible with freedom. The, who, who's putting anything comparable to that today? I don't see that. Um, but I do want to raise one other point for, to talk about it, and, and it, it's not exactly a counter argument or a counterpoint, but I think it's relevant to try to integrate this because if the general trend, and I think I, I agree with this, the general trend is anti-intellectual. It's, it's empty of substance. Where? How do we think about how do we integrate that with two? at least two kinds of phenomena that we see in the culture. One is, I think there's a uh, strongly assertive and maybe newly uh, assertive religionist camp. And I think especially after the the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe, I think that, s- that energized them because that was something they had been uh, campaigning for for many, many years. So, so one way to look at them is, well, aren't the conservatives or the religionists maybe that's a better way to characterize them the, the religionists in the political scene can we say that they're ideological they they have a long-term vision because in a certain way fighting to overturn roe for 50 years i mean there's some kind of vision there it's horrible and, and uh, it's really destructive but there's something and then on the other side and they it was interesting that neither were of these two were particularly salient this election cycle but um the kind of progressive that uh, AOC represents and before her, Bernie Sanders. So there's sort of the people who describe themselves as socialists or democratic socialists or qualified, but they're much more in recognizably socialist than other people in the democratic party. How do you think of those? Cause i I mean, at first blush, they do look like they have more of a long-term perspective if you think about the green new deal it's like what's going to overhaul the entire economy and, and nothing's going to be left untouched uh, and the religionists are basically we're going to bring religion back and religion needs to dominate politics is subservient to it and that's their vision so how do you integrate those
1: now, i don't think of the religionist as long term vision in really so there is a long term perspective but it's a concrete bound vision that they want to, to endure over time but this is part like it's a dogmatic perspective but dogma you can have a perspective of yeah this dogma should rule for centuries and nobody should ever question anything and change anything so it has that semblance to it but it's um it's completely accidental i think in the end and a real religious mentality it's not about the content of the religion and this is part of i mean mean, this is obviously a widespread phenomenon and it tells you something very deep about religion that it's um well everybody expects if you got the parents of muslims the, the kid and so on will grow up muslim and if a christian this and a protestant that it's you'll just repeat what was there and it's completely accidental that the content of your thing is this version of protestantism or it's catholicism or it's islam and this version of islam and that tells you that what it's functioning is that there's not a view that this is intellectual content for which you can think like is this really true and is this False and so why would there be that kind of alignment? And this is the sense in which the content's accidental. And I think in the end, of religion, then is it's a more sophisticated form of tribalism. But it is it's a tribe. A religion is a tribe that we all say the same things and hold the same dogma, and we're going to do this from now to eternity. Um, And when you look at the issue of abortion, it's not true that this was a major issue for Protestants when you go back in American history and you don't have to go that far back. And it becomes one and they're told then, this this is what to do and this is what our dogmas are. And okay, that's what our dogmas are, then we'll do and we'll follow that. And so, and if 40 years from now, someone comes along and says, no, our dogmas actually are different, they'll follow that. And that's the sense in which it's following an authority um, and in that way, I think one should think of Trump and the Trump phenomenon as akin to religion. They're following an authority and they'll and he knows that. That's part of what's interesting about it. It's yeah, I could tell people that I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and I would continue to have this support and so on. Because the support's attached to the person, not to any ideas, convictions, intellectual content. The I think the Sanders AOC are a bit different. They're sort of the last vestiges of having some semblance of an ideological position. And part of what's interesting about what is going on, what I think for the Democrat Party is, they can neither embrace it nor really resist it. Because they don't have any countering ideas to it. They don't have any opposing ideas. They can't say that it's wrong. Yet, they don't want to support it, and they have some idea, which I think is correct, that they can't win on this platform. Americans are still rightly too suspicious of this form of collectivization, both of socialism, but of the kind of environmentalism, which I think of as another secular religion, of taking over things. So it's, the, but there, when you listen to Sanders or an AOC, they're a little more intellectual, I think, than say a Herschel Walker. Um, but it's, it's sort of the last vestiges of that in, in politics. I think I, that's how I think of it.
0: I, I just wanna come back to the questions. I, I, I think the, the premise of the question is probably wrong, which is why do voters accept these standards? So I think the premise assumes that the voters are somehow isolated from the rest of the culture and uninfluenced by all the other wider sort of intellectual trends and education. So it's hard to imagine someone going through the standard educational system and having a better, just by default, having a better view of what politics needs to look like and that what policies should look like and what, what we what to expect. So in other words, to have higher standards for what politicians should be presenting, uh, but but there's something there. I think there there's something about. The, I, I think there are voters in some ways are. I can't. I mean, it's hard to believe there are people who are taking their this whole issue seriously and what what I who do I want to represent me and who feel hundred percent encouraged and thrilled about the candidates on offer. So I think there there's definitely this was true in in twenty sixteen. people a lot of people said they held their nose and they voted for the least worst candidate that they thought was on the ballot. Uh, and that's a common feature that people don't look at politics like, yes, I'm fired up by this politician. This is and, and leaving aside the Sanders phenomenon, which, which had some some of that uh, flavor to it. But there is something here that I wonder what explains it. So, Uh, So I guess I'll I'll reform the questions. What do you think about the the voters' perspective? Is there anything to say about how they fit into this?
1: Yeah. So I think um, it's right what you said, and I agree with the idea that it's you can't isolate them from the culture. As though like politicians somehow come from some place, and the voters come from some. They're educated in the same places, and they hear, they read the same newspapers, and they watch the same. Uh, entertainment and so on, so that they're not in that kind of different category. But I do think still in America, if we we say, if you take um, kind of Nixon, the silent majority, there is still that phenomenon. And it might be that in some ways, it's more pronounced. So some of the political analysis, both of this midterms and a bit more widely of what's been happening recently in the U.S., I find plausible, which is that the way the parties are working right now, the, the primaries and the base are getting the more fringe candidates, that is candidates that, who, less, uh, re, who resonate less with the wider American population. And that's part of that people are disenchanted by politics. And when they're voting, it's voting against something. I can not imagine this guy in powers, I'm voting against him and they might not even know that much about the other candidate and so on. That there, I think there is something to that. And even like, if you think of the part of the Democrat strategy, which I found so cynical and, and indeed evil, that it was, we're going to support in the primaries the who they regarded as the more fringe candidates, election deniers, and so on, on the premise that people won't vote for them so it will be easier for us to get elected. And I suspect part of that strategy actually worked. But to just employ that as a strategy and to, to, and then to simultaneously have a message of, we're gonna lose our democracy if these people get elected, which was part of their message. And the idea that if you really think that you could help them get to that they're on the vote, that they might get into power and you think you're gonna lose their democracy. But there is that dynamic of, I think on both parties that it's pushing candidates who are less in tune with the wider American population and and I think that's partly reflected in these midterms and part of what people were surprised by which is that there wasn't that what they called a red wave and so on and that's because these candidates on both sides don't represent Americans and so it is an interesting question and this was part of Ayn Rand's view of Reagan she thought so again part of why I think she was so opposed to him she thought i think that a candidate who actually talked about the issues in more in terms of policies and principles and who was genuinely general, genuinely on the side of freedom and individualism had a chance like this part of the swing to the right was the population and the citizenry want something different and so it's hard now to say exactly what it is like where I find it hard to think like where is the American public in that regard but I think they're certainly better than the and have better views than many of the candidates who are on the ballot and for election and that's partly reflected in the results of this so it's if we had some better candidates would they have a chance of being elected I think in the in the wider general election, yes. Can they get from the primaries to that? So if a Paul Ryan was on the ballot, I think he would have been elected in many places. Could he get to be the representative of the Republicans in a certain district? That's much harder. But that's part of what's happened in terms of just the kind of the more... Uh, uh, immediate dynamics of how the parties are working, that I think it's right to think that this, this is a real problem.
0: So I want to come back to you in just a sec to get any final thoughts you have or suggestions. And we have some uh, resources we can encourage people to take a look at. I just want to take a moment and, and thank those of you who are on the chat. We we didn't get a chance to answer your questions, but I, we appreciate your support in the super chat. And we appreciate your listening and watching us uh, during the live stream. Thank you for your support. And uh, we have a few resources, but before we go to that, um, Ankar, any final thoughts or suggestions? Or um, I think the the question many people probably listening are are asking, well, is there any any positive hope or what do we do with this? That's a common question we get.
1: I I think to go back to what we talked about near the start, I think it's important and maybe it's now more important than ever that if you see a decent politician to support them um and it doesn't matter what side so don't think like i have to vote all democrat or all republican but if you see anyone who's half decent they require support and the way in which you've seen i mean and it was again we were critical of romney and paul ryan but I take them any day over who we have now. And if they don't actually get some support and people vote for them, and it's part of how they get pushed out. And so that's to say that I I mean, I mean it very sincerely. I was really glad to see that Kemp won over Stacey Abrahams in, um, in Georgia. I think he deserved to win, and people should have supported him. So it's not just wait for the ideal candidate. Who's not going to materialize in the president? It's still there. Are nevertheless better and or worse, and maybe now more than ever, it's important to support the better candidates, even if they have a lot of flaws and so on. Um, and to to think carefully about that, and then to vote accordingly.
0: Okay, well, let's draw a line there. We we've reached our time. Let's share a few resources with everyone um, on some of the topics we talked about. So the Age of Mediocrity by Ayn Rand is a Ford Hall Forum talk that you can listen to. And we've put a short link on the, on the screen for you. We'll put it in the show notes as well. It's a really powerful talk. She, she talks about Reagan, the relationship between Reagan and the religious right, and some of her uh, sort of really interesting analysis of what was going on. So that was from uh, early on in his uh, time in office. Let's see, I think we also talked about abortion and we can strongly recommend a book that Ben Baer put together that is, uh, you can find it on Amazon. The book is Why the Right to Abortion is Sacrosanct. And there is a link on the screen to one of the essays that's in that book, it's called Abortion Should Be Legal Until Birth. And Ankar has an essay that came out, uh, six years ago now, I guess, excuse me which is one small step for dictatorship. This was an analysis of the way in which the Trump campaign worked and sort of the dynamics behind it. Uh, I think it's a really powerful essay and you can find it on the, with the link that we put on the screen. We'll put it in the show notes as well. So I think that's all we have by way of resources. And of course, you can read more of our analysis and listen to past podcasts where we covered some of these issues on new ideal. Let me encourage you, if uh, you're here next time, you'd like to hear a discussion, we are gonna have three philosophers on next time to discuss Ayn Rand's philosophy. And it just so happens to be World Philosophy Day uh, next Wednesday, November 16th, you can tune in then. And we always encourage you to send us your feedback. You can write to us, newideal at aynrand.org. We read everything, we try to respond to many. And some of the feedback, uh, we integrate into planning and some of the, uh, the topics we discuss here on the podcast and some of the articles we publish in New Ideal. So we welcome your input and comments. And finally, if you're watching on one of the social media platforms, please press all the buttons that are relevant, like, subscribe, ring, click the bell, get notifications, and help us amplify this message and reach new people. We appreciate your watching. we will see you next time. Thanks.
1: Thanks a lot. You've been listening to New Ideal,